Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap. I got in the movie making business by being a real estate entrepreneur, but also because I'm a big movie fan. I get a huge kick out of watching blockbuster movies that I watch being made at Black Hall. COVID-19 has put a temporary crimp in production, hasn't it for everybody? But some amazing movies will be shooting at our studio soon and I'll have some amazing folks on the podcast. I'm also into ethics and philosophy and I think you'll see those themes throughout the podcast. So you're wondering, where exactly does the movie business and philosophy come together? That's the journey I want to take you on on the Black Hall Studios podcast. I'll bring you guests from both worlds, and I think you'll be surprised at how much philosophy goes into the world of making movies. Plus, you'll get an inside look at the new Hollywood of the South right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Give a listen. I think you'll enjoy what you hear. I'm happy to have you along for the ride on the Black Hall Studios podcast. Today on the podcast, I've got actor Eric Goins. Eric is from my home base of Atlanta, Georgia. And right now you can see him as Stephen Sharp, a supervillain known as The Gambler, in the CW's new summer hit, Stargirl. Shot here in Georgia, Stargirl has a great cast, an interesting, complex storyline. And after you hear this conversation with Eric, you're going to want to binge the first season. I know I'm going to, probably with my daughters. Check out Eric Goins on IMDb and on Instagram. Thanks for subscribing to the podcast. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Starman, are you there? I'm on my way. Someone must carry the torch. I'll try. Not you. Definitely not you. Well, we made it. Nebraska, folks. I know this has been difficult. The move and a new stepfather, but we're going to make a good life. What were you? I was Starman's sidekick. What is this thing anyway? It's called the Cosmic Staff. It's not supposed to work for anyone except Starman. Blow up a car. I did it. It did. That's funny. Someone using Starman's staff. I killed one Starman. I can kill another. There are villains in Blue Valley. They're the reason I'm putting together this new team. To get justice. This is our destiny. Who are you? Stargirl. Hi, this is Ryan Millsap. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. I've got a great guest today, Mr. Eric Goins. You can see Eric right now on the CW's DC comic series, Stargirl. Eric, welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to say thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. I know, you know, I know you can speak to a lot of people, and um, I appreciate you talking to an, a local actor here in Georgia. Um, you know, I'm not the Robert Downey Jr. of the acting world, but I think I represent the working people of Georgia who are here to make a living. And uh, I want to thank you for 
for talking to me today. And then I also want to thank you for just what you're doing here in Georgia, because as an actor who is really interested in having a inviting, successful, productive environment for film and television to shoot, I really appreciate what you're doing with Black Hall and um, really planting roots here um, and uh, helping us grow as a community and putting a tent pole in the ground. And even as you grow internationally, I, I appreciate that that Georgia will maintain its position at your headquarters. So, so thanks for having me and thanks for all you're doing. It's absolutely my pleasure. It's a, it's so exciting to see Georgia in this growth phase. When you think back 10 years ago, I don't know if you were, were you an actor in Georgia 10 years ago? Tell everybody what acting in Georgia was like 10 years ago versus today. Well, 10 years ago, most of my roles were defined as commercials and industrials. So there wasn't a lot of television and film in our market. So um, that was the majority of my work. And um, and then I also had to um, really, I had to have a lot of outside other jobs. Um, I had to perform at a theater regularly, which I loved. Um, and as what's happened over the last 10 years is more and more opportunity not only in the commercial and industrial world, but in the television and film. So these large scale productions and even the small scale productions are just providing so many great opportunities for local actors to really launch a career in this industry that until 10 years ago seemed like a, a dream. And those opportunities are here and they're available. And if you're ready and you're prepared, then there is no reason why you can't step into these opportunities and make a career, which is what all actors are trying to do, right? Like, so there's 160,000 members within SAG-AFTRA, which is the Screen Actors Guild that represents actors. And only the top 1% are the really ultra high earners, the $20 million a picture kind of people. Everybody else, the other 98 to 99% are a group of people who are just trying to make a middle class, upper middle class lifestyle for their families and pay their bills and and provide a good a good lifestyle for their families. And being in Georgia, it is absolutely a realistic and attainable goal to provide a good, solid um, lifestyle for your family, given the amount of work that's here in Georgia. That's so good to hear. When you talk to people who are um, imagining themselves as young actors, imagining a career in acting, what are some of the things you wish somebody would have told you when you were starting out? I wish somebody had told me that everything you have, Eric, today is enough to do it. I, I feel like I spent, and I think a lot of actors do that, I feel like I spent a lot of time trying to please um, directors and casting directors and trying to figure out what they wanted. Well, that's a problem, I think, for a lot of people in, in many careers. Entrepreneurship, for sure. I mean, when I have young kids come to me and ask me about being an entrepreneur, I have a similar commentary, which is, are you in a position where you now believe you can do it? Everything I bring to the table as a human being, as Eric Goins, the person, the individual, the father, the husband, the friend, um, it's enough. And not only is it enough, it's a lot of times what they're looking for. And so I wish somebody had told me that all the tools I had were already inside me. You know, there's a great saying that it's, you know, it's not what the 
actor becomes to play the character. It's what the character becomes because the actor played it. And that has never rung more true for me than than today. And I wish somebody had told me that a long time ago because it's such a worthwhile career. It's such a great road of self-reflection and self-growth. And if you're a storyteller, you know, I, I, I firmly believe that the world needs all types of people. They need teachers and lawyers and doctors and plumbers and electricians, but the world needs storytellers. And sometimes that storytelling journey can be really difficult. And it's, it's riddled with a lot of no's, you know, no other career. Well, it's hard to think of another career where no is your answer 95% of the time. And that's what it is uh, being an actor. But knowing that I have enough inside of me, really the barometer for my success is not, did I book the job? Did I make the people on the other side of the table happy? It's, did I present my best self today? Did I conquer my anxiety and my fears and my insecurities? And did I present a very vulnerable human being doing the best he can, giving pieces of himself that only those people on the other side of the table might get to see? Did I present that in a way that was the best me I could do? And if I did that, well, then then I succeeded that day. And I can walk out of that audition and know that I did the very best I could. And after that, the decision's out of my hands. I have no say in it. And I can't hang my hat on the choices and decisions that other people make. And I wish somebody had told me that it's that easy 10, 15 years ago, because it's really liberating when you, when you, when you walk this very difficult career with that type of philosophy, because it can be a very people pleasing type career choice. Well, there's a lot of careers like this that you have to show up in the present moment and you can't control the outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, sales, Sales is a great example. I um, I teach, I, I've done improv for 20 years now, and some of the best lessons I've learned as a human being come from improv. And uh, I teach workshops sometimes, or I have in the past, and, and I've taught salespeople. And what the lessons that you learn in improv that are applicable to salespeople and teamwork and team building are just, you know, listening, being present making good eye contact, reading unspoken uh, gestures, yes, anding, taking someone's information and, and building on it in a collaborative way that brings success to both parties. So it's a win-win and as opposed to a yes, but, which generally means you discount everything you say before the but, right? Yeah, you got a great idea, but. And so those tools I think are what really allows an actor, an improviser, a salesperson, or anyone in any type of career to stay present. And I'm so glad I, I learned those tools in improv, and I wish everybody could take improv once. Have you done the kind of psychological inner exploration of yourself that lets you know why it is you enjoy this career? Yeah, I sure have. So I started taking improv about 20 years ago, I started taking classes. And when I started taking classes, I, the, the, best, the best way for me to describe it is that the chemistry in my brain changed. I used to work in corporate America. And so I had a long history of, of working in corporate America. And so I started acting a little later in life. And the only way I can describe it is that I went from being a very product driven slash um, 
operationally focused person. I worked for Coca-Cola for a short time and I, I helped schedule um, fountain installation. So it was really like detail, detail, detail. And when I started being a storyteller, the chemistry in my brain changed and I started to think in a different way. Think outside the box is the, the cliche that we hear quite a bit. But then I also started to realize that if I was going to have any success as a performer or an actor on television and film, then in order to share the things that people were expecting me to share, so sadness, happiness, frustration, um, love, uh, a compassion, all those words that are important in our society, in order to share those, I had to go inside myself and find them. And I learned that lesson really, really early. And so acting for me, the thing that keeps me going is that it is a journey for myself, for me, to really create my best self, to like realize this very comprehensive human being that is Eric Goins with all the emotions and the feelings that a fully formed human being can have. And I'm not there yet. And I don't think I'll ever be there, right? I think for me, the human experience is, is a continuous growth. And being a storyteller and being an actor has provided me this really cool path to journey towards that because I can only share something if I own it. I can only own it if I know I have it. So if I have to cry on camera or, or show compassion or be kind or happy, um, you know, like crying on camera or being vulnerable, those aren't necessarily skills that as, as a young man, I was taught. Right. So like it wasn't encouraged for me to cry and be vulnerable. But on screen, I have to. On a stage, you absolutely have to because the audience can tell if you're not being vulnerable and they don't believe anything that you're you're giving them. So in order to find those, I have to go inside. I have to find out what drives those emotions within me. And as a result, now I have it. Now I have it as a human being and I've identified that it's there. I use it on camera, but I keep it in my body and I have that for the rest of my life. And that's what drives me as an actor. And, and that's the journey that I'm on as an actor. And I know super deep, super like deep and introspective, but I think it's the only thing that can keep you going in a career that's very challenging. Well, it sounds like spiritual exercise to me. Absolutely. I think it has to, it has to encompass some part of your career um, is, is having that type of spiritual exercise where you, you look deep within yourself and find out not only who the per who the person is you need to be for any given situation, but who the person is you want to be eventually and go find those traits and start expressing them. Like you can't, you can't be something on camera or on stage unless you are that in real life. So what I always tell actors is if you want to be compassionate on camera, which I think is arguably one of the most powerful worlds words that an actor can think about as a, as a performer or an actor, if you want to be compassionate on camera, well, then you better go be compassionate in life because the camera doesn't lie. If you're a compassionate person, then you will you will be compassionate on camera. But if you're not compassionate in real life, there's no chance that it's going to read that way on stage or on camera. So you got to go be that. You got to pull over and help the lady that needs help with her car. You got to, you know, the proverbial got to help the, the old lady cross the street and things like that. So that way you're building those skills outside of the craft, outside of the career. So when you come to the table, they're already there. You're just showing them who you are. You're not trying to be something you're not. You're just showing them 
And hopefully what I bring to the table this day is what you're looking for. But if it's not, well, then you'll find a brand that works today. And hopefully my brand of human being and acting works for you a different day or in a different role that you haven't even thought about yet. There's a certain conception of the soul that believes that the soul is either expanding into a greater humanity or contracting into something away from a whole humanity. Do you relate to that? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I think if we're not moving in one direction, then we're kind of just standing still. And I don't know that that's possible, right? Like you're always moving towards or away from something. Even as human beings, when we talk, we tend to move in to talk to people when we're interested and we move away when we're kind of dismayed by what's in front of us. So I think not only does that, does that paradigm exist? I think that we have a choice as to which way we move towards it, right? I think we can make a choice each day by practice, putting thoughts in our head that are moving us towards the good and not towards the bad. And I think we have control over which direction we move. I absolutely um, identify with that. I don't know that my entire life I've been moving in the right direction. I mean, I think all human beings have have parts of their life where they they find themselves in the dark or lost. And I've been there. And I think making a choice to move towards the light, so to speak, is something we can all choose. And that's what I'm choosing to do at this point in my life. So in the movie Chariots of Fire, Eric Little very famously says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. Do you feel anything like that? Do you, do you feel like the universe takes pleasure in the craft that you've chosen? I think so. I mean, as a Christian, I believe that God has put me on this planet to be a storyteller and to use my talents and skills in the greatest form that I can. Um, I feel most alive and most in touch with God when I'm on stage in front of a live audience. I always tell people, if you want to know who I am, like the full totality of who Eric is, then come see me in an improv performance where I have no prepared lines, no scripts, no rehearsal. It's just me being present and sharing the, the most essential part of who I am. And in those moments, I have the same experience, right? Like he feels God when he's running. I feel God when I'm performing. I know that I am in the place I was built to be. Like I, I had an experience. Um, I was in a movie called The Boss with Melissa McCarthy. And while my scene got cut, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life where I spent a full day with Melissa just improvising. Oh, that's it. Because I had one line in the movie, but but the improvisation that we found together, my scene got fully expanded and then it got cut drastically. <laughs> and I remember distinctly in that moment where I was improvising with this icon of improv, saying to myself, for the first time in my career, I realized this is what I'm built to do. This is where I'm supposed to be. And when you have those types of like elucidations, enlightenments in your path, you're like, oh, wow, all the hard work and all the possible disappointment is totally worth it because I know this is what I was made to do. Were you this self-aware growing up or was this something that came later? Talk me through some of your awakening. Yeah. I mean, I was 
I was not this self-aware as a young person. <laughs> I can tell you that. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, you know, I grew up focused on um, achievement, right? I was very achievement driven. I was, I was conditioned to be um, uh, achievement driven. And so a lot of times when you're driven in that way, I think you lose the sense of self. I think you're not self-aware because you're being driven towards a product, which is, um, you know, generally speaking, achievement. I would say a, a lot of my awakenings, like I mentioned earlier, like when I started doing improv, first of all, my the chemistry in my brain changed. And I understood that if I wanted to do something that I legitimately enjoyed, then I needed to become aware of the tools I needed to do that. And so I think in a way, maybe my achievement-driven upbringing was pointed in the right direction, in a healthy direction, because then I wanted to achieve introspection in order to become a better performer. And so I had to do that. And so I went in, I, I went deep and I started thinking about who I was as a person and who I needed to be and how I treated others. And um, all those things came to my person so I could be a better performer. And, and that didn't happen until later in life, right? Until then, I kind of, I feel like I kind of walked around looking outward at everything. And then when I started doing improv, and, and I think it could be true. I, I, I don't, I think it could be true of, of anyone's career. For me, it happened in, in a performance-driven career because I think it's what I was built to do. So, so that moment really created a sense of introspection for me and that when I walked on stage and I had to be a character or share something in front of an audience, that the only way to authentically do it was to make sure I had it within me because an audience will always, always see whether you're being authentic or not. And I think that's where the trust comes in, right? So when you're doing a live performance and you're sharing something that may not be authentically you or trying to do it in a way that somebody else has done it, you know, the classic trap for an actor is, oh, I'm, I'm playing a cop. Uh, so, okay, for this audition, I know what a cop looks like on television. And I, and I, I kind of, I've watched Law and Order a ton and um, I'll just do it the way I've seen it because obviously that's what succeeds in this, in this industry it comes off as bad acting and on a live performance stage, it comes off just as inauthentic. And now the audience doesn't trust you. But if I just do it my way and I say, yeah, I'm going to play a cop, but I'm going to play Eric being a cop. And it may not be what you thought it was going to be, but it will be me. And whether I fit into this project or not, one day you'll find a, a cop that needs to be Eric, the cop. So that was, that was a real important point for me, but also, you know, as, as a Christian, those are moments where I have to look inside myself too. And I have to dig deep and I have to make my life fall in line with what I find important, the, the, the parts of my humanity that I find my, my uh, important. And so, you know, my faith drives me in those directions as well. And so getting, getting reinvolved with a church that I, that I go to, you know, regularly and, and those people, obviously that plays a role in, any type of spiritual journey or introspection that, um, that, that I have to find because, you know, the first thing you have to do is identify that you need the introspection, not maybe not as a performer or a, or, 
a career professional, but as a human being, because at the end of the day, I think we all want peace in our lives and we want happiness. And for me, what I have found is working on who I am as a person not only helps me in my career, but it brings those things to me outside of my career, in my family life, in my relationships. And, I, and I'm not by any way claiming that I've figured it all out. I just know that the, the, the small successes I have on a daily basis are moving me in the right direction. So there's a psychological system called the Enneagram. I don't know if you've ever heard oh, of it. Oh, I'm an eight. <laughs> That's what I was going to I was going to ask you, what are, what are some of your haunting life questions? So you have a lot of power questions at the core. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to journey with this power struggle. Yeah. Right. Cause an eight, their core life question has to do with who's in charge and how much power do I have and how much power do other people have over me? Yeah. So I have to keep it in check. I have to really, I have to really, I have to work on it. Right. Because an eight is the protector. Um, and so I am often misunderstood, I think, in my, in my life um, because I come across as very intense and sometimes intense can, be, can feel like intimidation. And, and sometimes people could be intimidated by my actions or by my intensity. And so I, had, I really have to go and look at not only how... I not only have to look at the things that I want, but I also have to think about how I'm impacting others around me. And I have to present myself in a way that the way people perceive me isn't threatening or intimidating or anything like that, because I have a, I can do that. Right. And so I also have to check all my, all the things that are my underlying reasons why I do things. Right. So, so eights are, are generally driven by, um, kind of a lust, right? So, uh, not not like in a sexual way, but like a lust for achievement or a lust for um, possessions or a lust for um, a specific title or a lust for greatness. Those things are driving you, right? And so on a regular basis, I have to make sure I'm doing things for the right reason and get those underlying issues under control um, and really make sure that I'm moving in the direction I'm moving in for the right reasons. and. I'm the first person to run into a burning building to help people, but I can also be very reactive and um, I can react to things on a trigger. And sometimes that's historically got me in trouble because I react and then I've either said something I didn't mean or um, created an environment that's not healthy for everybody involved. And so what I've, I mean, little things. So like I wait 24 hours to return emails. Right. So I can make sure that I'm clear and I have to I have to put a lot of discernment in my life um, to help me manage that that kind of eightness that I am. I mean, eights are often misunderstood. And um, it, like usually when you talk about the Enneagram, everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm a one. I'm a seven. That's so awesome. And when you say you're an eight, people are like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, it, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a really, um, it's a challenging uh, Enneagram to carry on your shoulders, in my opinion. And I've, there's yeah, great well, podcasts out there about Enneagrams. I encourage anyone to, uh, to go into them. My wife's a seven. So, you know, 
she's like very free spirited and always looking for a um an adventure and and sometimes I'm always like as the protector I'm always looking for the for the danger so to speak so we've got to balance that too in our relationship which is which is a fun journey in in which ways do you think you might have been born this way and in which ways did you experience power struggles as a child yeah that's a that's a really great question i think from what i've read um you know the enneagram really is a lot of it is based on the challenges that you may have faced as a child. Like, like it's the whole nurture versus nature question. And I don't know if I can parse out exactly where all that came from. I think um, as a young person, I was encouraged to really fight, right? Like to fight for what you want, to go after and get it. And um, failure is not an option. And if you... Um, if you fail to prepare, then you should prepare to fail kind of mentality. So it was always like, go get it. Um, you can do anything you want, which is a healthy choice, which is a healthy, you know, it's, it's good to say if you go for it, um, you're going to get it. Um, if you work hard, these things will happen. But um, I, I think under the right circumstances, then, then it becomes unhealthy, it, all encompassing and more of a, a, a focus on achievement. and. Um, and I'm not sure how much of that is nurture versus nature, but I think, I think a lot of it is nurture, um, just being driven towards a goal and, and, and having your, your worth put on achievement. Well, you're clearly achieving in your current role on Stargirl. Tell me about that character. Uh, the gambler. As CFO here at the American Dream, my focus is... Of course, to balance profitability with our extensive philanthropic appetite. As such, the suggestion box for our next community fundraiser is open, so to speak. Ideas, folks. Well, Mr. Sharp, there are so many new restaurants in Blue Valley. And back in Valley Village, California, there was a taste of the town once a year. It was a way for the restaurants to introduce themselves to the no. community. But it really Everyone in Blue Valley knows the restaurants already. Bad idea. Any others? Yes? This may sound a bit silly, but the farmers would do cow pie bingo to raise money for the schools way back when. They would raffle off square plots in the field Does and they would- Does sound silly and disgusting. Anyone else with an idea? Well, no one else. Now come up with something. So the gambler um, was created in the DC world. He is a supervillain and um, I booked the booked the role. Jeff Johns called me 30 minutes after um, I I booked the job, and he gave me a rundown of who the character was. And it's really interesting. So the gambler is this manipulative, always on guard chess player. He has no superpowers like all the other superheroes do. He doesn't have a ring or ice that he shoots out, and he's always playing everybody he's the villain amongst the villains and so when i got the role i, I took a look at um, all the history of the gambler and um, i decided he was going to be one part uh tony soprano one part riverboat gambler and one part uh, colonel sanders and his driving force is that he walks through life kind of syrupy and um he's always presenting the person 
he needs to be to the people in front of him based on what he wants. And he's going towards this end game um, of getting personal possession and money. Cause in the show, he's the only character that ha- doesn't have children. And so it's a really cool dynamic, this show, because the supervillains, what, what we're finding is the supervillains are some of the fan favorites. And it's because they're doing really bad things, but the show presents them as doing them for potentially legitimate reasons because they have children, they have family. And at the end of the day, they're trying to make the world better for their children, but they're doing it in awful ways. And they're deciding that life is potentially expendable in order to get what they want. But the gambler doesn't have those, those ties. He doesn't have a, he doesn't have children. He doesn't have a family. So he's only in it for the money. He's only in it for his own personal gain. Um, and that makes him particularly dangerous. And um, I've really enjoyed playing the character. I, I think it's a lot of fun. The thing I've, I've really been surprised at is the fan support. Um, the way people have embraced the story and the characters. Because they've been following them their whole lives. And that's been a surprising element of uh, being on the show that I never expected. And it's, it's arguably one of the most rewarding parts of it. Because everyone who follows the show are just really kind people who just love comics and they love these stories. And that's been rewarding to get to talk to them on a regular basis and, and interact with them online. Um, it's been it's been remarkable. In what ways does this supervillain have a soul? Huh. So that's a great question. I So everyone is the hero in their own story, right? So I think even to him, he's doing the right thing. I think he's hurt. You know, his, his storyline is that he was in love with someone and she ran away with somebody else because the guy had a windfall of, of money. And I think he was hurt by that. And I think he has a soul. I think that's a great question. Um, I think he has a soul in the sense that he's doing the best he can given the tools he has. And he's working towards what he thinks he needs to be, to be enlightened, to be, to, to enjoy life. And, and just because he has a soul doesn't mean it's directed in the right way. Um, His soul is damaged. His soul is hurt. And he's responding in, in the only way he knows how. And ultimately, his, you know, you would argue that his soul needs to be saved. His soul needs to, to be cured of, of what's driving him. But it sounds like his spiritual journey is one of adapting to vice in some sort of way that vice might be a virtue in his soul. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. So his end game might be taking him to a very dark place, but he believes that the very dark place is actually conforming with the greatest understanding of reality. Yeah. I mean, I think he thinks where he's heading will ultimately give him happiness, right? He thinks that what he needs in order to be comfortable and happy is personal possession, not love, not relationship, not anything except personal possessions, earthly goods. And, um, but at the end of the day, he feels like he's on a valiant, legitimate journey, and he'll do whatever he needs to get what he wants. 
even if it means hurting people. Why do you think you're able to channel this kind of essence and play this character so well? So that's a great question because because I don't particularly think I'm a an evil guy with with misguided um, ambition. So what I had to do as a performer is try to figure out how I wanted to present the character. And so when I looked at who the gambler was, um, I decided that in all situations he needed to be likable and he had to have a smile on his face and he had to be good humored and um, he had to be personable. And I can do those things. And so what I allow to happen is I allow the context of the situation, like the writing, the storyline to really provide the kind of evilness to who the gambler is. But I play him in a way that isn't necessarily nefarious in any way, shape or form. He's not, he's not like this evil person who's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get you kind of thing. He's acting in a kind way sometimes, and he's doing what he's told and he's smiling on his face and he's saying, yes, sir. And no, sir. It's the context of the story that is really driving the audience's perception of who he is. And so that juxtaposition between what's really going on in the story and how I play the gambler, I think is particularly effective because he becomes likable not only to the characters in the show, but also the audience that's watching it. And they have to go, wait a minute, this guy is doing horrible things. Does he really mean what he says and what he's doing? Or is he about to stab somebody in the chest? Because I don't know. And that's what I can bring to the table. I can bring a personable quality to the gambler that in my opinion makes him arguably more dangerous within the context of the story. And I think context to any story is so incredibly important, whether you're on stage or on television or film. Um, and so that's how I kind of present the character, let the context drive kind of like the evilness of the character and then let my personality rise in contrast to that, which makes him even more of a of a supervillain than than some of the ones that have superpowers. Try this on with me. Years ago, I did a four day workshop in L.A. for fun that was hosted by a casting director, but it had nothing to do with trying to get parts in in productions. It was really it was hosted by this casting director, and it's for professionals. And it was for them to come in and spend these four days and for the casting director to get to know them and to listen to who they were or are as people. And at the end of this four days, he then laid out for you seven essences of who you are as a person, according to those around you, how you're perceived. Right. And so it wasn't necessarily about who you actually are. It was about who the society around you believed you might be. And it was in, in order to help you understand the roles that society would allow you to play with credibility and then understand that if you were trying to do something in life that was outside of the realm of what society would naturally allow you to play, that you were just going to have to overcome that. And if you were trying to, right. And if you were trying to play roles, like in this case, like play roles that you were naturally suited to, and that everybody around you perceived you as naturally suited to, then it would just be easier because socially you would be given license to play these roles. Are you with me so far? Oh yeah. 
right? Very, I think it's very interesting. And so when I heard you talking about playing the gambler, it made me reflect back to this time when he said to me, one of the essences he gave me is he said, I could have gone the other way. That was the essence. I could have gone the other way. And we were trying to explore this. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, what I mean by that is you come across as somebody who has a really introspective soul, but a person who has a really introspective soul can go in many different directions. And so the characters he he at the time he was walking through like uh, these characters that Matt Damon would play. And he'd say like, I could see you playing the kind of characters Matt Damon plays. Sometimes Matt Damon can be the good guy. But then when he shows up in the talented Mr. Ripley and in the middle, like totally um, is revealed to be this evil, evil person, it actually works because he has the kind of soul that you could say, oh my gosh, he totally fooled me. Or in this case, like I listen to you and you clearly have a very deep introspective soul. And so when they put you in this role of a, of a supervillain, it actually makes sense because the only way you could be a supervillain is if you actually still, you, you, you had the capacity inside to be a super good guy. You could have been a superhero just as well as a supervillain. That's what makes the character effective. So I know who you're talking about. Are you talking about Sam Christensen? Exactly. Sam Christensen. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. What a small world. So super small world. So I took, I took the same workshop. Amazing. And, and that was really an enlightening moment for me as a human being. I'm so glad we're discussing that because it, it's true, right? Like we could talk another hour about this, maybe longer. Um, because I, we all exist on a spectrum, right? So, so in order to be, I can go to each side of the spectrum. So when I came through Sam Christensen's workshop, the word he gave me, the one that defines me, right? Because he, he thinks that, you know, every human being exists to show the rest of the world what, what the perfect essence they hold is. And so mine was reactivity. And so while I can um, be super reactive on one end of the spectrum, I can also identify on the other end where I can shut down in a minute. Like if I'm in a, in a place where I'm uncomfortable or discussing a topic I don't like, I'll shut down. But that exists on all of our behaviors, right? So I can I can be those things. So what you're saying echoes a hundred percent to me. Like, you know, because like some of the like my some of my essence statements were like I was gonna ask you, like, do you remember some of your essence statements? Oh, I always have them. I always have them like right next to me. Right. So like I love this. Um, the butcher is the most popular bachelor in the village. Um the plumber <laughs> the plumber works on weekends, but I'm also don't push the detonate button. Don't, 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 oh, don't duck. Right. <laughs> It's <laughs> so good. Loyal occasionally to the point of self-neglect. I love that Meet one. Meet Mr. Smith, the honest politician. Um, short fuse, surprise explosions. The friendly neighborhood butcher dreams of being an opera singer. The St. Bernard may drool a bit, but he's still the star of the family. I love that. And this. the list goes on and on. That yeah. was probably, that was probably, not only did that help me as an actor, and by the way, there are, you know, Sam unfortunately passed um, about a year ago, but there are people here in Atlanta who have, who are picked up his mantle and are teaching here in Atlanta on his behalf under his guidance with, um, with his team um, that are still doing those workshops. And they just so happen to be my, like my best friends. Like they, they teach the class, but they're also they're my daughter's godparents. We go to church together and they're carrying on Sam's legacy um, here in Atlanta, which is incredible. So there's still tons of people taking that class and 
not only did it help me as an actor, because it did tell me that thing. It told me that like, it doesn't matter what I think of me. What matters is how the world perceives me. And that's kind of what I was talking about as an eight. I have got to really kind of, I've got to, I got to check myself as to how the world perceives me. Cause that's arguably more important than how I perceive myself. And, um, but it also helped me with the relationship with my wife. My wife and I took it together. We mm. took it the same weekend. Mm-hmm. And at the end of it, um, Sam like, said, okay, Eric, your word is reactivity. And like Lauren and I, my wife looked at each other and she was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. <laughs> and, then, and then he goes, and Lauren, you are anticipation. And I looked at her and I was like, oh my gosh. Literally those two words, you know how like when you have a disagreement, generally when when disagreements get bad, it's not about the topic at hand. It's about how you present your side of the position. And so like you can be right, but still say your side wrong. And that, and that becomes ineffective in a conversation. Like those were the things like, so my wife's a seven and her word that Sam came up with is anticipation. And if you know about the Enneagram, that is spot on. And that was before we did the Enneagram. And so now we understand that like when I bring out my reactivity and my wife Lauren brings out her anticipation, like those are just who we are as people. And when I'm reactive towards something, she's learned to understand me that I'm not being, you know, I'm not being overly protective. I'm just being my essence. And so while I am getting, you know, while I adjust to make sure the world around me sees me in the proper way, the people who I have closest to me understand who I am at my soul at my deepest level, and they can give me the benefit of the doubt sometimes. You know what I mean? And I thought that was a really cool tool for a married couple because we looked at each other. We're like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. We, when my ex-wife and I did it together, same thing before we had children. And, um, we still to this day joke about those essences. Oh, we joke all the time uh, about it. (laughs) I mean, we actually use them. Like if, if like something, if we're having a, if something's going on between us, my, I'll be like, you're being, you're being very anticipatory right now. And she'll, and she'll be like, well, you're being reactive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, those, that is so true. Can't help it. I think what, what Sam has created is one of the most special things that an actor or, or a person can, can be a part of. It was, I, it was the, honestly, it was one of the first, it was the first time my wife saw me cry out loud. Hmm was during that weekend and i'm not trying to give the impression that it's like this you're going to go in and get broken down and you're going to feel all these emotions so i don't want to scare anyone away from it but like i was i allowed myself to be vulnerable in a moment and and my wife got to see my true feelings on a on a subject that we had never talked about before and that was really special what's the your friends that have picked up sam's mantle what is the name of their company how can people find that online do you know yeah, so um so my friends Matt and Brooke, um, they we both run it's so funny, we're best friends and we have competing businesses. We both run um businesses that help support actors in the market. So we both run taping services. Mm-hmm. Um mine's called Compass, but theirs is called Get Taped. And um under under their umbrella, they run basically the Christian uh Sam Christensen workshops. So I think the best way to find it is to look up Sam Christensen online. Mm-hmm. And out of their LA website, they'll have a link to 
the Atlanta classes here. Um, and then I can also give you the information offline and then that way you'll have it. So if anybody asks you about it, you can, you can give it to them firsthand. Yeah, that's great. Um, but, but Matt and Brooke are dear friends of ours. They're my daughter's godparents. Um, and couldn't be, couldn't be two of the better people there. I don't know if there are two better people that could have helped take up Sam's Sam's mantle here locally because they care about his work and kind of like the, the evolution of the human spirit that they care about it in the same way that he did. Mm. Well, Sam was a real legendary casting director. There's no doubt he was, some people wouldn't know this, I guess, but everybody in the industry would know that he was the casting director for mash. Yes. Obviously was a, a worldwide success. He did his thesis on Hamlet and he, what he recognized was that people weren't going to see Hamlet over and over again, necessarily just to, to see Hamlet again, they were going to see the particular person playing Hamlet give their interpretation of it. And so Hamlet's one of the most widely, you know, done plays in history. And so he found it interesting that people would go back again and again and again. And it wasn't to see Hamlet as much as it was to see, well, I want to see this particular actor do Hamlet, which I think is interesting. No, it makes perfect sense. And I think it was also interesting because I believe Sam was Danish. Yeah, probably. I don't know what his what his heritage is, but what a del- what a delightful, loving man. I'm so glad we got to talk about him today. I agree. I, I remember um, him telling a really funny story about going to Denmark, and he, sa- he said, "I get off the plane and I start walking through this city, and I sa- and I say to myself, why haven't I come here before? Everyone here is beautiful.'" <laughs> <laughs> and Sam just, had a beautiful soul. He had a beautiful soul, and he was a beautiful man. He was physically yeah. just a beautiful man. He, yes, he, he was. He could have been an actor himself. I'm not sure if he did any acting, but um, he definitely had the the self introspection and the depth of um, character to do it for sure. That is for sure. Well, Eric, I am so thrilled that you are in Atlanta, and the entertainment industry is fortunate to have someone as soulful as yourself uh, committed to this space. I really appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Eric. Great job. Really appreciate it. That, that was fascinating and fun. I'm Ryan Millsap, and this is the Black Hall Studios Podcast. Putting an exclamation point on the end of each podcast, I share inspirational sayings that I write and share on Instagram. Happiness does not originate in the mind. We do not think ourselves or will ourselves into happiness. We can only find happiness in pure being. And that pure being is the deepest mystery and the truest truth. It is everything we have ever desired flowing right now through all things. Tapping into that this very minute is possible and worth everything. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. <laughs>